What does it take to become an elite 40k player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40k Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of War Unbroken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law. Over the next hour, we're going to be talking to a great player who has lost a game of 40K. They say we learn the most from our losses, and that is exactly what we aim to do with this podcast. Top players will be breaking down their mistakes and giving expert-level advice on how to evaluate your own games and improve in a competitive environment. How often have you blamed the game on bad dice or as a random chance occurrence? As we all know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Our hope is to analyze the core mechanics behind why we actually lose a game. This is the first episode of the podcast, and it's something we are very excited about. We have some great content coming your way. I'm very excited and honored to be co-hosting one of the best 40K players of all time. He's a nine-time member of Team USA, a winner of several major U.S. events, including Adepticon, three top eight finishes at LVO. He's a player who's been around so long, he bought his first army for a nickel and a handshake. <laughs> Number one in the hearts of 40K players everywhere, Mr. Brad Chester. Old man Brad's in the house, ready to rock and roll. Brad, you just came off a big win at Motor City GT. Can you tell us how great that win felt? It felt pretty awesome. I mean, I, I wasn't really uh, <clears throat> thinking that I was going to lose any games because everybody knows I'm the tallest, the youngest, the prettiest player. So, you know, I was really looking forward to that win. Super sexy. Yeah, super <laughs> sexy. And our guest today is arguably the most famous 40K player of all time. He's a four-time Adepticon champion, three-time Nova Open champion. He's a former ITC champion. Lifetime member of Team USA and a seven-time Super Bowl champion, my good friend, Mr. Brown Magic, Nick Nadavati. Ah, yeah. Hey, welcome to the show, Nick. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the last time you lost a game? Thanks, Blake, for having me. This has always been my dream come true. Come on, yet another one of the Art of War podcast to talk about why I suck at 40K and <laughs> losses. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's it's what you said, though. Like. Learning from your losses is actually what makes you a better player and how you actually get better. So, you know, the idea just came in and slapped me across the face. It was your idea, but it came in and slapped me across the face. Why don't we make a podcast interviewing people who lost? We got people who win. We should get the other side of the story. It's, It's funny because you said that's why I was really drawn to it, though, because... I feel a lot of times people, especially when you're in smaller uh, groups and smaller metas and stuff, if you're not getting beat, you're not taking losses, that's when you're not growing as a player. And you might actually have hard times when you go to the biggest events and the biggest stages in 40K because you're not learning. I think you learn the most from those defeats. And that's one of the biggest things I was so excited to talk about this on the podcast is really just to, you know, pick yourself up and like, you know, what did I learn? What am I going to do differently the next time? Yeah, I, I think that's really that. cool because you think about like, um, I think one of the hardest things for someone to do is like sit down and be like, you know, like how how did I lose? Why did I lose? You know, like really just breaking it down. And I think bringing on top players like Nick and yourself and just seeing how y'all analyze the process, I think it's going to help a lot of people out there. <laughs> I get nervous if I win too many games in playtesting before <laughs> a, a big man. I mean, I'm serious because I know that I'm missing something, you know, and that's. And I want to f- basically find that mistake. I don't want to find that mistake, you know, in in the top eight versus Nick and go, oh, I forgot to do this. You know, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> we'll actually talk about my playtesting process a little bit here as well. I think that'll go nicely in, in conjunction with this episode. 
Yeah, since this is the first episode, I would like to discuss the format of the podcast and like the topic content we're going to deliver and all that also. So each week, we're going to interview one of the top competitive 40K players in the world. And I think what's really unique and awesome about that is we're going to interview players when they lost, like we talked about. So it's, it's kind of different to what you'd expect on a typical format. The episode is going to be broken down into two parts. Part one will focus on the why behind the loss. It'll go into what the player did wrong, their, their thoughts for all the way from event prep to the final round of the match. And then part two, we're going to go a little bit deeper on what the player learned from the event, what they plan to do to move forward, and kind of the nuts and bolts of the match and kind of uh, you know different tactics and things like that. So let's get into the discussion here. Nick, let me hear about your 7-1 performance at the recent event you were at. Absolutely. So I took Drukari, public enemy number one, to the Dallas Open this past weekend. Uh, John Lennon, who won the entire tournament, I actually ran point for point the same army. Um, we worked on it together. A lot of my ideas evolved through discussion with John and the other Art of War coaches. And um, we thought we had brought the bee's knees, the best list in the house. So we were ready to, to bring that and show it up. So um, Dallas was an awesome person tournament. It was 172 people, I think, all wow. said and done. Uh, it Is was that the eight, biggest since COVID? It's the biggest since COVID, yeah. Uh, yeah. Since, it's huge. Um, yeah, the LVO 2020, 2019, whatever when that happened last, it was the largest since then. Wow. Um, so uh, it was 250, or it was, uh, 172 people. It was... Eight rounds, so it's a marathon 40k tournament in, in a different type of format, too. It wasn't uh like a nine where you have two days and then a top eight, it was actually just no. a straight up, it was just eight, eight rounds. rounds. Yeah, the winner of this tournament could have lost a game, like it was, it was cool times. Um, there's a lot of different types of tables, there's basically four different tables you could play on. There were maybe five, there was like a deserty one, an icy one, a pipe Mars one, um, a weird ziggurat pyramid one and this double L table that's kind of more classic. Um, so you had five variations of tables. Each one had their own things they were good for, things they were bad for, for different armies. Uh, for example, like the pyramids sucked for uh, like monsters because they couldn't move through the pyramids. They had to walk around these giant impassable structures, basically. Whereas like a double L table was really good for armies that want to hide behind ruins and live in L's, very classically. So I think different having a table variation like that was pretty interesting, but... Overall, really good tournament, and uh, 7-1, I'm pretty happy with it. Do you feel like that affected you, this, the, the five tables? And was there any like factor in that that kind of played into a win or a loss or anything like that for you? Um, I don't, I don't want to say the tables mattered too, too much in any games I specifically played. Not to say that tables and terrain don't matter. They certainly do. Um, but the commonality I found amongst every table I played on was that there was ample terrain that I could hide behind. And during my list... Uh, construction all i really cared about was being able to hide some amount of raiders in my deployment zone turn one like like three if i could have like three or four raiders i'd feel great um so every table gave me that opportunity past that tables certainly had influence but they they did not make or break my games i wouldn't say i think that's a kind of a sign of a, of a good tournament where they kind of have a pretty universal like not a big impact on the game depending on table I think you need an adequate amount of terrain in nine to have a competitive game. Like hundred percent. I can't agree with that more because TOs, you have to have effectively a minimum amount of terrain or you're taking the game out of the general's hands. I mean, if you don't, if you don't have things that you can make tactical decisions, uh, it just becomes a dice rolling game and that's not very fun. 
Is there anything else you think this like demographically, like where it was, you know, your travel time, anything else that kind of affected your game or anything like that? That's an interesting question. Um, so I, I'm pretty used to traveling to all kinds of places to play 40K. I've been to Europe like seven, eight times. I don't know to play. I've been all over America to play. I mean, Canada. So I've played in a variety of formats, all kinds of tournaments, local terrain, standardized GT terrain, all kinds of stuff. So I'm, at this point, I'm kind of ready for anything. Um, the the meta in Texas, because obviously a tournament in Texas is going to draw a lot of local yeah, Texans yeah. plus other people. Uh, the meta in Texas isn't too far off from what you'd expect from most events. Um, I, I would say play style-wise, Texans typically are a little bit more aggressive, but that's hard to generalize. So that, I mean, that didn't really factor into my plan as much either. I Everything's a little more aggressive in Texas. That's right? just how it is. Right. No, it's just like, you know, as a play style... They they might run at you a bit more, which isn't a bad thing. It's it's just a thing, and it was it's not so noticeable that you can count on it and make a strategy for it. Just you might experience that. Go go have fun. With that. What do you what did going into like an eight game environment, which is significantly different than obviously an RTT or a five gamer? Like, what do you do to get ready for that? As far as that's different than you normally would on a regular event, say a three a three day a three game RTT or just a two day five game, because you've got fatigue, you've got to play a decent amount more games. There's more stress. Uh, you have more opportunities to play at the higher tables, so you're going to get more top, you know, really really difficult games in. Uh, that's a three. great point. Um, the the philosophy I use to win like an eight person tournament or an eight round tournament, especially one. With uh, only a hundred, only one hundred seventy players uh, <laughs> in eight rounds, you don't have to smash every game the same way you would at like a thirty-person three-round RTT. When you have a thirty-person three-round RTT, you go to like fifteen winners, then say eight winners, then four winners, and the tournament's over. So you're competing with four other people to get first place, second place, or third or fourth. Um, in an eight-round tournament, it's so much more simply: did I score the win? So in that, I take much less risky plays. I try to go for much less risky list design um, in, a, in like a, a London GT style event, which is like a 400 players, five rounds. You're going to end up with like a ton of undefeated players at the end of it. That's where you need to smash everybody. I need to get 100 victory points every friggin' round so I can actually place well. And if that means I have a skewed matchup and I have an auto loss, that might be a risk I take and, and is worth considering because I'm not going to win the tournament unless I score enough points in the matches that are favorable anyway. I've gone five and zero in those style events and placed like nineteenth. It's not great. So, uh, I, was, I was say I'm actually Sadly for me, I've had to change my play style a lot in those type of events because of the fact that I've had a history of going undefeated and still being down just because of that, not scoring enough battle points. Because as a whole, as a player, I'm more of a win first, score the rest of the points later. But in a lot of those, you can't do that. So <clears throat> it's a real thing. So. Um, a lot of times in this in this Dallas Open GT, I w I always went for more consistent plays and more consistent list design choices than spikier, more graphical list design choices. Um, to to give an example, I I built in stuff like while we stands. We'll talk about that I'm sure a lot as the episode goes on into my Dark Elder Army, just to give me more consistency in the hard missions against the hard matchups. I built in um, Helm of Spite as a relic choice. Didn't come up one single time, but I didn't want to lose because someone was able to take secret ritual and against me and like the scouring which has happened before so i really went out of my way to make sure all of my bases were covered in the list design and in the play testing and then at the tournament i just went for low-hanging fruit plays over and over and over now in the game i actually lost i started swinging for the fences a bit more as you do to actually win the game but 
when I was in control, I was not risking the fact that I was in control from a mindset standpoint. Do you prefer the the longer tournaments or do you prefer the times when you actually have to go all in? I personally, I personally prefer the, the longer tournaments. I think they give you, they give you a lot more of a cushion because I, I feel like it sucks being forced to play in a style that is unnecessarily risky just for the sake of I need to score more battle points to, to actually do something at this event. And that's I'm in the same boat as you, Brad. I worry about getting my win first and then how, my, how big my win was is an afterthought. Or it's, you know, that, those are bonus points. And when I'm forced to prioritize getting more battle points instead of winning, that's, it's not something I... I like doing. I'm not happy about doing it. So I definitely prefer these longer ones. I agree on that 100% with you because I, I don't like having to make non-optimal plays just because I need to get that 100. So I prefer the longer. Even though I fall apart because I'm 1,000, I do prefer the longer, the more game tournaments to give you more of an option. Uh, where just winning is more important than style points, basically. Just to, That's just really to interesting. Just like example yeah. a little bit further. In the eighth round of the Dallas Open, this is already after I'd suffered my loss. So I was fin- I was six and one, vying for seven and one. If I finish seven and one, then I'm competing for second place, third place, fourth place, or fifth place, depending on how my points go. So at this point, I'm in the position of it. Assuming I win this game, I need to also dunk stomp this game and get as many points as possible. So I actually chose domination because domination is one where you score your secondaries in three, six, nine, twelve, 12, or 15 in a six-objective mission where I'd have to hold four objectives, which is quite challenging. And wow. my opponent looked at me like I had six heads. He's like, this is that's an aggressive choice there, Nick. That's like, a yeah. bold, bold was, move, Cotton, I think, I was, which should be the appropriate like, stance. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't want like a 13 on engage in all fronts. I want a 15 on domination. Like, we're going for it. You're like, you know that six isn't an odd number, right? Okay. <laughs> I got I got the stones for this. Okay, you did, I got sir. The you I did, scored. sir. You did. I think Dude. that's super interesting that you like for newer players, especially out there, that like your level of aggression changes depending on you know the type of event, the length of event, number of players. I think that's uh, just the demographics like changing the way you're prepping for an event is pretty cool. It's so much different because of the fact that if you're going for one of these smaller, like for the London GT was a great example on that. It's just you end up having to take riskier plays all the time even in games where you're in control just because you're forced to get that that hundred you know what i mean you just you can't just win you have to put the big points up but the problem is is when you go for big points you put yourself at the risk of something failing one of those those uh gambles you're taking are going to fail so you're going to have the chance you have a higher chance to lose yeah, absolutely. Like if I take domination, there is a real chance I only score a nine or twelve on it instead of a very consistent thirteen from engaging all fronts. But there's not really getting a fifteen on engaging all fronts is sacrificing two units on turn one, whereas getting a fifteen on domination in this scenario would have only been sacrificing one. So that was a bit of a calculated risk as well. But like you said, Blake, like all these things do factor in on these granular these granular choices factor in on these levels. Nick, why don't you why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your list? And just kind of tell us, if any, if you had any perceived weaknesses going to the event with Dark Eldar. Definitely. So Dark Eldar is obviously public enemy number one, as we've all talked about. Pretty much every one of our, <laughs> one of our podcasts are, are talking about how amazing they are and what people can do to beat them. So my list was was fairly classic with a little bit of a Nick twist on there at the end. Um, it's Cabal's Witches and Dark Tactomancers. The Dark Tactomancers is pretty standard. Drazar 15 Liquefire Axe. Uh, 
<laughs> which is were standard ish. It was those super broken razor plus succubus. You mean the uh, the fact that Battle Scribe just auto populates in three units of racks and just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just plug this attachment in. It's like three hundred fifty points. Go have fun. <laughs> like Amazon, where they like you might also like this exactly. chart. Hundred <laughs> percent. Like Drasar is your HQ here. <laughs> Um, so then I had the witches, so super broken razor flail lady that I can't believe still exists. Um, two units of five witches, and then a unit of eight witches with more veins agonizer, who were somehow. I was actually the day before thinking about cutting them because they had to learn a lot. They were crazy MVPs. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta go crazy the day before list submissions. That's also a, a standard. That was the same. <laughs> If you're not trying to figure out a way to change your list at midnight, what are you even doing? <laughs> you're not even going to return. <laughs> Been playing this for months, no one cares. <laughs> um, and then the the Cabal of Blackheart was probably the most interesting part of my army. So I got your classic six raiders. The raiders are amazing. You're gonna take a bunch of those. Um, I had two units of five warriors of blasters, which I which pumped me up to nine troop choices total, which was amazing. Having nine troop choices felt great all weekend. Uh, a big unit of 10 Trueborn with a Dark Lance and two Blasters, um, a unit of five Mandrakes, two units of five Incubi, and then I had a double Archon, one of which was super slappy with the Jin Blade, and then Hatred Eternal for reroll all hits, reroll all wounds. He stole Drazard's Warlord trait, don't tell him. <laughs> and uh, I bought him the fight twice for Master Archon. And then the other Archon I gave, he was the Utility Archon, he had Fight Last from Ancient Evil, and he had the Helm of Spite, which never came up, but it could have. And um, uh, two quarts of the Archons with Sliss and Urgul's. That's the, the brown magic signature right there. I will I will literally grill you a little bit about that and stuff moving forward in part due. But for right now, I like the I really like that you said it didn't do anything, but I really like the Helm of Spite and the threat because we talk a lot about Lennon and I were actually talking about this the last time we were on, and that. A threat a lot of times, especially when you get into the top level uh, games, is actually better than the actuality of it. You know, what it can actually do. Just the threat of, I might deny your best psychic power. I might give you perils. You know, I could possibly go to this side. You know, any of those things. A lot of times, just the, the threat of, I might do something, is bigger because it makes your opponent play differently. Uh, did you have anything else that you, you were thinking about in playtesting before that you had in your list? that did things of that nature? There was a lot of tweaking. Um, that's where kind of like the Helm of Spite came from. And, and I totally agree with you. And I, even though it did nothing, I wouldn't cut the Helm of Spite. The theory behind it was I don't have any anti-psychic defense. So if someone does want to take a very viable psychic secondary against me, that's 15 points. There's no stopping that. Um, so if I put this in something like psychic ritual which would just be 15 points maybe now it's i deny it a couple times it's not a 15 do they even take it in the case of just there's an important power you have to either be outside of my deny range of this archon who can be as aggressive as i i don't care he's a cheap archon he can go on the front line um he can literally go on the front line because the slits are bodyguards he can't be shot um so he can be very aggressive with that deny and stop a key power in a tournament there in one of the rounds i think it was round seven i was playing against death guard and we were in some janky 40k land. So he had like a couple smites lined up on some incubi. And this was pretty important that the smites actually killed out the incubi. So the caster first did like Curse Leper from Death Guard, did a few mortal wounds to my incubi, but he perils doing it and did three mortal wounds to himself. So then the next cast, he was like, well, I wanted to smite and finish these incubi. 
But if I get denied by that Helmet Spite Archon, all of a sudden, that's Peril's Psyker explodes. He's got one wound left and does a whole bunch of mortals to all the other nearby characters. Like, he really contemplated just not even casting the power. Now, in actuality, he casted Smite, rolled a three, left it there, and it just failed. But that could have been quite a swing moment had I just denied him or he chosen not to cast the power altogether. 100% on that. I feel that that's just the threat of that. Just makes your opponent, you know, have to make more choices. Nick, why don't you go ahead and tell us what did you actually lose to at this event and kind of walk us through this game? Sure thing. So I played against Mark Hurdle, who was a gentleman with AdMech. He's been playing AdMech forever. He actually made the finals, uh, losing to John Lennon, running my exact same list in the finals. His AdMech are really well tuned to his playstyle. He knows his army inside out. It's got all the usual nuts and bolts for AdMech, Triple Scorpius Disintegrator. It's got uh, the plane that bombs you, uh, some ponies, some Electro Priests, and tanks. It's, it's pretty AdMech. Um, it's not quite as all-in on shooting. Uh, it doesn't have breachers like many Admech builds, so I wouldn't say it's standard, but it's not... Looking at his list, I'm not like he's reinventing the wheel. Um, and then in that game, we played Priority Targets as the mission. I think it's called Sweep and Clear. It's the one where you just score mm-hmm. your own secondary points for holding your objective. I messed that up one turn. That was embarrassing. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a tough game, and I guess it's what we're here to discuss. <laughs> What was your target priority going to this matchup? You look across the board, and what do you say? That has to die, that has to die, that has to die. So I don't look at the AdMech matchup like that. AdMech is already naturally a bit of a counter to Dark Eldar because their weapon profiles line up so well into our durability. Oh, so crazily, too. It's, it's very much if I get a turn in the open, I just don't have an army anymore. So I played the AdMech matchup exactly one time against Richard Siegler. Um, one of our other order coaches. Um, and he, I played that game in our Streamhouse RTT. So it was a fairly serious game. It wasn't just like, let me half ass this test game. But it was in that mission, it was Vital Intelligence, which was one huge factor, which I didn't, it, it was huge in my game with Siegs, but doesn't apply to every game. I'll explain that in a second. And then uh, the terrain was also pretty beneficial to me. So um, I got to play a very, I'm hiding behind a wall and you can't really come near me kind of game because if you do, I'll just charge you. And that was that's a really controlling way to play against AdMech if you can pull it off, but you can't always pull it off. So then the other thing is in the Vital Intelligence mission, once you hold an objective in Vital Intelligence, it's yours until the other person claims it. So in that game, I like made sure to hold my objectives in my backfield on turn one. Siegs didn't blow me up turn one from out of line of sight. Then I could just full-on aggro forward, not leaving anything in my backfield, and usually something I would like to leave in my backfield, like five warriors, would just get obliterated by a plane or Scorpius disintegrators. I don't even have to worry about that anymore because that's still my objective, even when I have no models on it. So yeah, I got to be way more. Vital Intelligence is, is probably, if not the best, one of the best missions for Dark Elder versus Ed yeah. Mike, for sure. I hadn't realized that based on my one test game, but now having played it once with Vital Intelligence, once not on Vital Intelligence, definitely that skewed my results from testing. Yeah. What did you think going into the game? Like, as far as when you were going into it, what was your game plan and what went wrong in the game plan? I think my game plan fundamentally was, was wrong. So I tried to recreate exactly what I did to Siegs because it worked so well versus Siegs. And that was a game plan of there's decent terrain in the middle of the board. There was. Um, it's not a terribly hard mission to score like tens on primaries for a while. 
and uh, I've got and, good and What was that mission again that you played? It, it was Sleeping Clear. So it's uh, clear, five objectives yep. in a diagonal pattern, and you actually take turns moving the objectives, um, which we'll talk about as well. So my point what going secondaries in, did you take? Um, I took priority targets, which is the missing specific secondary, which is you nominate one of the objectives on your side, you hold it, you get three points. Hold it at the yeah, end. Auto of your take. Yeah, auto-take. Um, I took domination because it's a five-objective mission. I figured I could just I want to dominate at the end of my turns just to make sure Mark doesn't score 15 points at the end of his. Um, and then I took raise the banners. And this is part of the, it all goes to the strategy, right? So my strategy was sit on my side of the board, not blitz the Admech army. You can blitz the Admech army. That is viable, but that's not what I wanted to do here. I felt like I had a good enough strategy sitting back and not taking those risks. Um, so sit back, draw him into me. That's part of why I took banners. You know, he comes towards my side and I get to table him. If he doesn't come towards my side and he sits on his, fine. I'll just hide behind my walls. You hide behind your walls and I'll just, Raise the banners and get the points. Get my dominations at the end of every turn. Get priority targets at the end of every turn. Get my so did, so did you play sweep and clear? Or did you play priority target? I think not, I'm so bad at the mission names. It's uh, we played priority target. Okay, because <laughs> I was about to say sweep and clear is like a literally the 32. No, sweeping sweep and clear and direct assault go together. I hate yes. how they have the name of the mission. With no, the no, no, you're fine. I was just like you, yeah. you said sweep and clear. Then I was like, I, I'm pretty sure you played priority target, but I'm going to let him go for a minute here. This, this is a bad <laughs> habit I have. Yeah, I always get these two confused. Um, we played priority targets. Final answer. <laughs> Can do. And um, did you did you when you move the objectives? Were you trying to be more defensive or more aggressive? Were you trying to put him in the open or behind things? Like, what was your general strategy there also? Here was, a, here was mistake number one, if we're going to just get into it. Mistake sure. number one was he, he moved my objective, the one like directly underneath my home ruin where I want to set up shop, straight six inches into the open. So now all of a sudden my home base doesn't have an objective and it's really holding even that thing from safety is very hard because it's just in the open. Um, so in response, I moved the the two objectives in the one in his deployment zone in his room. I just moved that into the open, which isn't quite as impactful because my shooting isn't nearly as devastating as his. And then I moved the objective that on my side that wasn't like in my deployment zone. It was kind of like right on my half, but not in my deployment zone. I just moved that behind a wall so I could hold it from behind a wall. And then he did the same thing on his side. So I think the big thing, and I don't even know if this is like a strategic mistake, but is a big factor in that game is that he just got to move my objective to the open and that sucked. Now, did you take your priority as the one that was in the top left then and just switched? Yeah, that, that's what I did. So that forced me yeah. to cause, I, I made my priority target the one that I moved behind the wall. So not the one that's super right in front of my deployment zone. But it's not too far away. You're you're a the top yeah. the top left if you're in top left top left yeah. if you look at the map. So I made that one my priority, and I actually only scored a twelve on priority because I actually did end up missing it one turn. Um, I should have made the one in my right in my deployment zone, right like top B or b bottom left. Um, the one right there, I should have made that one the priority. Even though it's in the open, you only have to hold your priority at the end of your own turn. If I can't walk three inches during my turn with an opsec unit, I've lost this game. Yep. Agreed on that. So that so was definitely learning point number one. Learning point number one. Get the get the book out. This is a great episode. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I mean, so what else you want to know? What well, well, how did you play the primary? Like what was your goal? Like, were you aiming to deny? Were you aiming to obviously you said you're aiming to sit back to, but were you gonna like kind of missile units forward and try to deny turn to turn or 
Well, so here's here's what happened. Let me just give you the general ebb and flow to the game. Um, give you a short form battle report, and then we can kind of take them there. So we have the setting, which is he's with my objectives to the open, and I'm hiding behind the wall, and he's he's there. I took banners, priority targets, and uh, domination. Mark started using this. His army's all stigies. So he started stigies, scout moving, Electro priest towards me. And at this point, I was like, what the hell is going on? So I just used agents of Vect right there. I was like, um, I don't want these things moving. I just don't. I want them on their side of the board where I can know what they can do and limit that. So I just vet that. Then he used his pregame move thing again at the cost of two CP. So he's done it two times for three CP total that he stopped. But I, I don't know if that was the right call. I think it was, but I, I genuinely have no idea. Um, and then Mark went first. So Mark is like on top of me, like two boats start halfway up the board, and then he's going first. Okay, I'm behind a wall, so we'll just see how bad this hurts. Um, Mark did some really beautiful plays, which I could have stopped had I seen them coming, but I was a little bit inexperienced with this matchup. Turn one, he flew his, his bomber, his Blaine thing, straight up into my deployment zone onto my home field objective, like on the one that he moved right into the open. It's just there's a plane sitting on that. And it's sitting on it to the point where I can no longer move on to this objective. There's a plane there. Like, it's got a giant base, and I can't stand one inch away from the giant base while being on the objective. It's very, very obnoxious. Um, so that was a great move on Mark's part and caused me a lot of headaches. And then the other vehicles he had just kind of came out and really, they didn't just blind aggression me. But they they were in a they they drove up in the midfield pretty comfortably and basically do what I wanted to do to Mark, which was get in the midboard, get out of line of sight, control the table from there. If if he wanted to move up, then he would be doing so into my charge range and my kill zone. And that's what Mark did to me. He had 30 electro priests in the middle of the table behind walls. And if I did anything, I'm just getting electro priested in the face. Uh, the plane also prevented me from raising a banner because it's an enemy model on my objective. So just off the bat, I'm, I'm really down in momentum. I'm not taking terrible casualties. His turn one shooting killed like five witches and half of a raider. Um, I was pretty well defended, but it just so much momentum loss here. Well, thinking back over this and the general, we'll go into the general strategy and kind of things that happen. But as far as secondary choices, knowing that he has, well, I've actually played this a lot, uh, knowing that he has the flyer and stuff, going back over, would you have just taken a different secondary than banners? Because it seemed like that was a, yeah, uh, a low score um, at that point in time. I, my my thought with banners is exactly what I said. I'll either draw him into me, and then I get to kill him for free, or I don't draw him into me, and I just score awesome on banners. Um, and I figured if he just tries to block my banners early, then I can raise a bunch of banners at the end of the game because I'm the one who killed him because he kind of suicided his army to stop my banners. That was my thought process. I did that a lot with Dark Elder. It typically does work out for me. It was actually pretty much a, I don't know what to take here. Let me take this choice. Uh, I went back. If I had taken something like Bring It Down, I would have scored eight points on it. I scored one in Banners for spoilers, so much better. So yeah, Banners sucked. Banners don't. It could have worked. There, there was legitimately worlds and universes. No, I, I'm a huge well. Banner fan with Dark Knight. Uh, it's one of my standards on it for sure. I was just like in this particular match. Uh, I just, yeah, I think, I think it had too much potential to go wrong, which I wasn't valuing. Um, so in hindsight, Banners was a mistake. 
I think the others were fine. Engage and uh, not engage. Domination and priority. I mean, you're always going to take priority, and my list is going to take something from the battlefield. Oh, I, I think the domination was a good pick for you. The only one yeah. I would say that that I you could probably learn on. We we're, we're talking about looking back in hindsight, moving forward with that matchup, which is what we're trying to do here in the podcast. Is a the the banners would be a different pick. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. So secondary choice, definitely. I think that was a little off. Also, this is this is uh, interesting. So a couple things I could have done differently right off the bat in deployment. Five witches that were just standing in the open or five warriors, just some throwaway garbage I don't care about, could have been just standing on my home field objective, move blocking the plane. I was there first. It's in my deployment zone. So that prevents him from blocking my banners. That prevents him from... Um, move blocking me from getting on my own objective. I had to fire and fade onto my own objective to hold up turn one. That was so obnoxious. <laughs> um, so also the, the plane flew right like one inch away from my giant castle of Raiders behind a wall, which is fine. It can't see me. And that's, that's perfectly happy hunky dory. But when I kill this plane, because I can't let this thing live, it auto explodes and blows up on my Raiders. And that's not super horrible, but you know, that's like five D three mortal wounds across five tanks. It's unnecessary. I had to take it up the face because I didn't see this move coming. The other thing I think I could have done differently in hindsight was maybe my mandrakes. I had my mandrakes just alpha on a flank doing absolutely nothing because I was like, they can just be mandrakes for a little while. They should have deployed nine inches away from his deployment zone. Block that scout. Block, block the scout. Move. They just yeah. should have been doing that. I didn't think Admech were going to come straight towards the Dark Eldar army. So it wasn't one. Of, it's not like Raven Guard where they telegraph that stuff. I know Stygies can do that. I know Stygies don't mind doing that. But I just didn't think that Admech would do that into Dark Eldar. Little did I know. You know I didn't now, know looking at the matchup again, would you think that you would play a little more aggressive uh especially I may mean, not really deployment but just in your first turn movements and stuff uh try maybe trying to rely more on uh fights last and everything else to try to push up to try to basically be able to jump and touch some of those vehicles because a lot of times the the solution to add back is just to grab things you know what i mean and get them shooting what you want them to shoot yeah, oh. Mark, Mark did a really great job one of the plays i was looking at especially in the early turns was just uh uh, taking whichever raider I could and moving it 22 inches straight ahead with enhanced ether sails and then just from there charging into Scorpius disintegrators because a lot of their guns are blast weapons. So uh, they're just not going to kill ra raiders in combat with them. So they're going to have to fall back or they're staying in combat. Doesn't matter. Not getting shot by Scorpius disintegrators. I'm a happy person. Um, Mark did a really beautiful job. The board was terrain heavy enough that there were only certain places raiders could land. Not like only a few, but they're, they're basically these avenues where raiders can land. There's no terrain, and then there's a lot of ruins where raiders can't land because there's like a wall in the middle of my raider. Um, or my raider would land, be landing halfway through a wall. And Mark did a really good job using his boats and his placements so that I could never land the full raider and be more than one inch away from enemy models, not be halfway through a wall, and be anywhere close to charge distance of like the last chickens or the Scorpius disintegrators. And then there's the problem was like this Corpus Cari Electro Priest and the Full Guy Electro Priest all just hanging out in these Dune Riders in midboard. So one of them or two of them were out in the open, and, and these were very tempting. Like I could come forward and blow them up, but they were in a position where Mark would then be able to get the priest out out of line of sight and then just use them as a counter charge. 
So I couldn't really one-two combo the priest. I couldn't kill a transport, kill the priest inside, especially on bottom of one. I don't even have advance and charge up yet, so I'm actually quite slow relative to normal speed. So it was just a, it was a very back foot to kind of play out of. Now, to say I'm really good at digging myself out of holes like this, so I put up quite the fight from here. We're not, this isn't, the game is not over at this point, but we started off on the wrong foot. So it was kind of a got you moment almost for you. Like like he played a lot more aggressive than you originally thought, and it's kind of how banners backfired a little bit for you. I mean, there, there's like, I don't want to have any negative connotation with what happened. I was fully aware of every rule and tactic Mark used. He just moved a flyer and used his pregame move stratagem, which I knew about. Right. It's, yeah. it's really just, I misunderstood the strategy going into the matchup. My strategy was based upon the one game I played against Siegs under a very specific scenario, good line of sight, blocking train, and uh, vital intelligence. And it didn't apply in priority targets when my objective got moved into the open and Mark went first with Stygies. So yeah, I, I just kind of put Dark Eldar versus Abnick into the category of this is my Dark Eldar, that is his Abnick, I'll just do the same thing. When really I should have recognized this is two different games of 40K being played. Yeah. Hundred percent. I can't agree more on that one because the the mission itself is just such a wildly different animal. Uh, but that's the thing. That's what. That's why we're doing this. This is let's talk about what you know, learning and growing from this. So we we really as you made a secondary error. Let's talk about like the just kind of give us a quick game recap, and then we'll talk about the things that you learn that you would do differently. We already know that you know, uh, you know these things could do. They can do this now, and they did it very effectively with Mark. Uh, give us the, you know, two, three, four kind of thing going forward and what so, things you can change. Sure thing, sure thing. So right now we've kind of covered just the general set staging and the strategic mistakes. Now it's getting the nitty-gritty. I think there were two tactical mistakes I made, um, but I'll get to, get to them as we get to them. So turn one, Mark flew up and just kind of board-controlled me. Um, my bottom one, I... Um, what did I do? I had my Trueborn Raider come out. I had my Rackifier come out, my Rackifier boat. And I had four boats stay behind the wall. And I I actually, he had three dogs, a unit of three dogs on the left objective, the top left objective that is uh, I moved behind the wall. Those pregame moved and just dog moved onto the objective so I couldn't raise a banner there. I, I used very clever tactics to move block the dogs so when they use the two CP strat to leave after I charged them, they couldn't go anywhere. So then I just obliterated them with some slits and rules that were pretty safe. And then on the rest of it, I just blew up the plane, blew up one of the Scorpius disintegrators, and mostly just stayed safe. Um, and Mark's response, uh, I also, the, the, I got a unit of five racks out so I could fire and fade onto my home objective and onto the middle objective because they can move, advance, and then fire and shoot and fire and fade all in one go. So they're actually fairly quick, even though I can't advance and charge on turn one. So I got racks out, and they held the middle objective, held my own objective, all with fire and fade, and got me domination. So... And kept Mark to a 10. So that was pretty on point. Um, from there, I, th I thought I was still in decent control. I mean, we got off on the wrong foot here, but the immediate problems have been dealt with, and we're back to our plan. Um, Mark shot me. I shot back. He's winning the shooting war because I had Mech versus Dark Eldar, but I'm not... You know, Dark Lances don't suck. They're, they're hurting here. Um, the big thing is, basically, I can't... I'm having to shoot the transports to open up the transports to the Electro Priest, and that means I'm totally ignoring the chickens and the Scorpius disintegrators. So they're just going to pound town. And over time, that sucks. Um, there was a fast forward to like turn two or turn three, or like turn three. And he's got 
he drives a boat full steam ahead towards some Slytherin on the top left objective that killed the ponies. Um, and I was like, this is my chance to get a momentum swing back. He, if he's based, I was afraid that um, if I go for like, let's blow up the transport, then charge the guys inside, he could potentially emergency disembark the electric priest far enough back that I couldn't comfortably charge the guys inside. Um, so I had to set up a play that blocked his emergency disembark, not totally, but enough so that he's not getting away from my slits once I blow up the transport. Um, so I do that, and then I blow up the transport and slits charge these electro priests. Separate from that side of the board, and this is where I think I made another mistake, I, I, I'm still having to get my domination and contest the 15s. So I get five witches out, and I just start sprinting them onto the middle objective. Now, on the middle objective are... Three rangers or three vanguard vet, three vanguard, whatever they're called, um, and two vehicles, two admic vehicles. You got so some skittles, witches, yeah. And uh, five witches is not more than five models, so I have <laughs> no, to it is not. So they have obsec <laughs> and they have five models, yes, yeah. So I have to kill the vanguard or the tank or do something about this situation to actually hold this objective, or I put another model on there, which any of those could have worked, but here's what happened. I I decided, screw it, I, I want to blow up the tank, which I know blowing up the tank can cause a pile of Electro Priests to get out of the tank, but I want to hopefully shoot and whittle Electro Priests and get them out of the tank. And then the Witches can then charge around them, or charge still, get in combat with those five Vanguard Vets, the three of them that are on the objective, and Witches should handle some Vanguard Vets, no problem. So I went with that as the plan. Instead of just putting like an empty raider on that objective as well to have six models or something like that. Or only trying to charge the vanguards, yeah. Uh, or only trying to charge the vanguards and not blowing up the priest. <clears throat> right. Um, so I blow up the tank, and then Mark uses the auto-explode strat because I just you know have to fall victim to that five times this game. Um, that I was going to say, <laughs> you're like, come on, Nick, stop pressing the button and electrocuting yourself. Well, I, I didn't think he would do it. Like he's blowing up his own Vanguard and my witches and his damaging his other tank to do this, but he did it. And then I had two witches. Cause of course he rolled a three and he rolled a two for his Vanguard. So three Vanguard. And now there's like 20 models on this objective. So now we're at the point where I have to charge my witches into the Vanguard and I have to kill them. My two witches have to kill three Vanguard. Otherwise this is going to be a really bad turn. So I do that. And then I realize this is the same turn where I have my slits trying to charge these electric priests out of the boat. So Mark over here, my main man Mark, he's he's like, actually, hold on, I'm going to interrupt with my three Vanguard vets with their four attacks and kill both <laughs> of your witches, and then eight points down the drain. So that whole thing sucked. That the whole thing sucked. What yeah. are the odds on that? Is that I, I'm not I'm not super familiar with close it's, combat it's, on Admech. It's, it's fours and fours. It's, he's it's, got a. It's not. It's it's not great because he's he's hitting on fours. He's only strength three, correct? He's only strength three, but I'm minus one toughness because they're those people. So I'm, he's wound, he's hitting on fours. He's wounding on threes. He's got four attacks. I have four up invuls and two models. Like I yeah. could have lightning fast and spent a CP reroll on this, but now it's costing me two CP. Yeah, Keep but it, mind, it, it stats they say he doesn't even kill a model. So this is just, it's low. It's you're gonna roll four dice. I'm gonna roll like less than four dice, and we'll see how many fours we each rolled. And it didn't work out for me. Um, I'll give you I'll give you this pass on the odds then. That's that's your that's your that's your bad dice pass right there. No, I, I don't look at this as bad dice. I look at this as, as poor. Well, he should have never blew up the bothered with right, killing the exactly. ride. He right. could have just taken five witches and 
it automatically killed them no matter what he did. Like, you could look at this turn. I think this is what the value of the podcast is. You could look at this turn and be like, oh, my my witches got exploded on. He rolled a three on me and two on him. And then they made their charge and got interrupted and killed. That's bad dice. But the whole tor- turn was miscalculated because I was doing multiple combats where an interrupt could have screwed me. I could have failed the charge. It was only a five, but like you don't have, I don't like banking on fives for eight points. Right. That's not great. Um, there, there were things that could go wrong, and there didn't have to be. So that's how that's the right way to view it. Um, another mistake I made, and uh, just to, to to continue on with the battle report, I suppose, is this ebb and flow to the game basically just went on. He shot me, I shot back, I traded stuff on the middle, he traded stuff on the my side. I was actually killing him a bit faster than he was killing me um, because of the once the once I got the priest dismounted, then it was also going into my turn three. Or sorry, my turn two. Um, by the time I on my turn two, I got all the priests dismounted, and then my slits could also come out and hang. Because when you get all the slits out on bottom of turn two, top of turn three, your opponent's turn, power from pain counts as turn four for your black heart slits. So they have five bundles and have five of feeling pain. So I did all this pretty quickly and then put a lot of stuff in his face all on bottom of two. And I was like, you can't kill us all. Your electric priests are getting battered, and now there's a lot of stuff in the army. He's ahead on points at this point because I just botched up this eight-point primary and domination turn. But at least we had this going for us. Um, but from there, it was it was a bit too little too late um, because my banners was just a bad score for the entire game. He just kept throwing stuff onto my banners to make me sad. Um, and then the eight-point primary swing there, it, that was a big hole to dig out of. So Mark started to lose his models faster than me um but not like the points didn't reflect that because in the end man it's it's still it's about who has the most points at the end not the most models so i I organized the most beautiful multi-charge in the history of ninth edition it felt like it (laughs) the angels angels saying there was a light coming down from the ceiling on the center objective i cleared everything I had, there was one inquisitor who just decided that he's my best friend. I based him, I tried pointing him with three Urgles, and the rest of the Slits and Urgles were just hanging out, were surrounding my characters, Drazor and the Succubus, so she couldn't get shot. So I had Drazor and Succubus who couldn't be shot, Slits and Urgles trapping base-to-base contact with the inquisitor. In that same combat, I had the witches... Uh, hit the inquisitor with Nemorvane's Agonizer, but didn't kill the inquisitor, because I only put one more veins agonizer attack into this guy or two attacks on this guy something like that um and because that the inquisitor was base to base with the urghuls and not base to base with the witches but you know within combat range of them the smites that the inquisitor the double smite this dude pumps out has to go into my three wound five of female pain 16 point models that i don't care about so the witches are trapped the urghuls and slits are trapped i actually had two solo incubi also pile into this combat it was quite beautiful because urgles only have 25 mil bases so you can actually base the inquisitor and then still be in combat with them on the other side of that urgle it was beautiful um so i did all that just dodge turn three shooting like there was or turn four shooting there was no turn four shooting phase from mark because whatever army i had left was just trapping this inquisitor and then from there i i run on and charged all scorpius charged the characters got there uh but then the game ended on turn five so in the end, the score was like 80 to 65. Mark had like nothing left. I didn't really have much left, but I had this entourage of slits, witches, and characters. Um, but my banner score sucked, and I had 
uh, two turns basically where a similar thing happened where I botched up the coordination of my turn and it cost me eight points domination plus a five. Well, let's go into the overall, you know, you, you got that, the good charge and everything like that. Do you feel that you could have made early more game aggressions in your overall plan? Or do you feel like the secondary choices, obviously we would have changed and we've got some more super detailed questions for part two, but as far as your overall strategy, would you have accelerated this one turn more? Do you think it would have helped or do you feel that you made the correct call as far as when you pressed? That's a really good question. A large part of playing Dark Elder, which I don't think many people on the receiving end realize, is tempo and timing. You have to know the exact place and time to strike, otherwise your army actually doesn't do what it's supposed to. Um, I think that's the key moment. That's the real best decision point you have to make strategically with the Dark Eldar player. That's that, It's the make-or-break moment. Um, and to back you up on that, you, a lot of people don't realize that that turn one or turn two movement is setting you up. A lot of times you don't need to fire that that random Dark Lance. You want to be in a specific position to get your army in and ready for the next turn. So I, I like what you said that. It was spot yeah. on. It's just you have to be setting it up. Yeah, it's all about that setup. It's it, it's hard because I play Dark Eldar differently to most people. I think I play it very much in my own Nick style, which is very passive, reactive, defensive play. I basically wait for people to screw up and then I go kill them because I'm super good at punishing people for mistakes with Dark Eldar. They're such a fast army, they can spot something and go do something with it. Um, I think I think my strategy banner sucked, but I think the strategy was okay. Um, had I just known to use my mandrakes more like mandrakes, had I put something on my objective so the plane couldn't screw me over turn one, those are little micro things I can learn and just do better on. And then I think this game, which I, like I said, I lost by 15. It's not super close, but it was also like there were two different eight point swings that were a matter of oh. miscalculations. Well, I mean, that's, um, that's a win right there. Anyways, Nick, if you fit, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, if you just go, I took scramblers and didn't mess up an eight point win, you know, eight point yeah, center, 17 you points. Know, yeah. You, you win that game. That, that's, that's yeah. a big deal on that. I, I don't think I have to readjust my strategy from the ground up and just say, I don't know how to play against that Mac. This is, do, do this instead. But I don't think that that's a wrong way to do it either. I don't think my approach with Dark Eldar is the only approach to Dark Eldar. You could have taken a more aggressive approach in this game um, and probably gotten a win as well. I think Dark Eldar is very much like a Mad Libs. You can choose your own adventure. Nice. Oh, so much. Well, it's a very good codex with that. Well, I think that's a great spot to stop this episode. We've seen Nick's process for breaking down the loss. We've seen how he's learned from it. And now we're going to go into part two. And part two, we're really going to get into the nitty-gritty of what Nick took, kind of pick his brain, ask him the hard questions, how he would modify his list, what he would do different in the next matchup, how he'd alter his strategy, all those things. Um, part two will be available to subscribers of the Art of War website. So just jump on the website, take a look. You'll have access to all the exclusive content for all the competitive needs you have. We also have some merch available on the website. We're real excited about it, some new stuff coming out. So you go on, get on the website and just take a look at it. And lastly, we will do a brief Q&A at the end of part two where we answer your questions. So if you have any questions for myself, Brad, Nick, most likely in the future episodes, we'd love to hear your questions and any of your feedback you have. Email any of this to Blake at theartofwar.com. I always want your questions. Please, please, please give us questions because it helps us make sure that we're answering the things that you actually want to hear about, not just me talking endlessly because I never shut the hell up. All right. Well, we'll see you in part two. Thanks for listening. 
Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War and the Art of War Down Under podcast on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.